0: Welcome to Pythagorean Astronomy. What you're about to hear was originally recorded and broadcast for Pythagoras' Trousers, a Radio Cardiff science show and podcast. You can hear the full show and listen to past episodes at pythagoras-trousers.co.uk Well, this month, uh, I'm here down in Portsmouth at a National Astronomy Meeting. It's where about 600 astronomers from around the UK have come to talk about their latest research and everything that's been going on in the world of astronomy. I'm joined by Edward Gomez, uh, also based in Cardiff. Welcome, Edward. Hello. Uh, So, uh, it's been a great meeting so
1: far. It's not quite, uh, quite over yet in lovely sunny Portsmouth. Yeah, it's been beautiful to be in Portsmouth this week. There's been so many exciting ideas exchanged, and it's always good to catch up with other members of the astronomical community from all over the UK. Uh, What kind of things have you seen at the conference so far? Well, one of the plenary sessions, one of the the really big uh, talks where all of the astronomers come together and listen to a single astronomer about a fantastic piece of research. One of them stands out for me by Sarah Bridle. She was talking about how you can make maps of the universe, not by using the light, uh, like we normally do, uh, but by looking at how that light is distorted by um, what we call... Uh, dark matter, so this dark matter bends the light um, from uh, distant galaxies, that, and there 's this dark matter in between us and the distant galaxies and how these galaxies are the light from these galaxies is bent, uh, we can produce a map of this invisible dark matter stuff that we can 't observe in any other way. That was a really, really fantastic uh, plenary talk. I really, really thought that she was a fantastic speaker. And one of the big things in astronomy at the moment is, is public outreach and education. There were a whole couple of sessions that you were heavily involved in, in organising. Yeah, that's right. I was, uh, me and uh, uh, a lady called Jen Gupta were in charge of putting together uh, what was called on the programme Engage Pub, uh, <laughs> which was the uh, the engaging the public and schools with astronomy sessions. We, so we had three hours to talk about fantastic projects that have been going on all across the UK, uh, websites uh, uh, different activities, resources, art, uh, which are to try and inspire the public to learn more about astronomy and through that learn more about science. It's also
0: a great networking idea. You get to meet people that you don't meet very often. You perhaps only meet them uh, once a year or a few times a year. And uh, the end of, t- today has is, is brought to the end of a something called a hack day, where a bunch of about twenty people, I guess, are sat in a room uh, hacking. That's uh, using code or hardware to a uh, Uh, to to hack together some ideas just in a
1: day to see what they can do and there were lots of great stuff there were some really fantastic ideas and hacking at the moment seems to have an awful lot of bad connotations, particularly with the phone hacking scandals and things like that. But this was really putting uh, software and uh, some hardware together to produce really good things. So looking at things that are freely available, uh, information that's available on the internet, and piping that through a bit of software to produce uh, a visualisation of the surface of um, Mars, or uh, looking at Uh, Somebody produced a haiku generator from scientific papers, which was uh, really quite good as well. So it was a lot of fun, and it's a different way of, of networking and collaborating with people that you probably wouldn't meet if you just stuck to your own research. Well, we've come inside now to the uh, the slightly cooler
0: environs uh, of one of the the circle galleries in the remarkable Guildhall here in Portsmouth. It's it's a little bit cooler. I'm joined by Helen Fraser from the Open University. So, uh, Helen, you work on ices and astrochemistry. So what does that mean uh, to to someone who's never heard of it before?
2: Okay, yeah, so in um, regions where stars are forming um, in our local galaxy... Um, it's very, very cold, about minus 263 degrees centigrade. So um, not nice and hot like today. In mm. fact, very chilly, worse than the winter time. And uh, what happens there is uh, there's lots of gas and dust. And basically, the, the gas freezes out onto the surface of the dust grains. A little bit like you get a frost layer on your car on a winter day. Sort of the same process, almost. But the kind of ice we find in space, it's not like the nice ice you'll have in your Pims and Lemonade while you're watching Wimbledon, which we can see on the big screen outside actually, which is quite nice. But um, it's, it's called amorphous ice. It's like a very spongy material. So it traps gas in it and that gas can, can be released or it can be trapped again. And um, these are really our little, um, they're very tiny icy dust grains. They're really our factories which make all the complex chemicals that we see as a as a byproduct, and the things that are influencing the star and planet formation process.
0: And it tells us about what happened in the early stages of uh, star formation when the planets were forming, is that what
2: Yeah, it's, it's pretty exciting. Chemistry sort of has a history, so the chemistry gets more and more complex the more we're going through the star formation process. The very simplest thing that happens is the hydrogen atoms turn into H2 molecules, and even for that to happen we need these dust grain surfaces. But once that starts happening we start forming lots and lots of water, which is the dominant ice we find in space. And in this water ice um, it becomes a real harbour for making more complex things like ammonia and methanol and ethanol and then even bigger more complicated things possibly even things like um, the um, simple um, molecules like glycine which are basic amino acids that we can spot in some star forming regions So by looking at at what we see in the solid state, what we see in the ice and what we see in the gas, we can get a very um, interesting history of how that chemistry has evolved and that will be influenced by temperature and pressure and conditions. So it's a little bit of a puzzle. It's an exciting jigsaw puzzle, but we take all the things we can see and then we work backwards with models and, and, and data to work out where that's come from. And, and there's,
0: there's so much going on here at the National Astronomy Meeting. There's, there's as well as the astrochemistry, uh, there's stuff on the Sun, there's stuff on distant galaxies forming, there's stuff on the solar system, um, and the planets in the solar system. What would you say has been going on recently in astronomy that's got you excited at the OK, moment.
2: well, I'm, I'm going to start in my field, because obviously that's where I really love to be. And actually, we, we had a meeting for the last two days, really, talking about how we're, as astrochemists, starting to not look at our local galaxy, but we're starting to look further afield. telescopes and the opportunities are coming online to be able to model the data and in fact we spent two days yesterday hearing about how people are modeling um, the kinds of gases and and dust and ices we find in nearby galaxies or galaxies out to about a redshift of around two so So that's a that's about 10 billion years ago kind of thing roughly around that time yes so So a long time ago a long time ago really where the peak of star formation was happening. That star formation rate is now dropping off. Some people start to use telescopes like ALMA which is the uh, large uh, telescope working in the sub-millimetre Uh, region of the spectrum, um, which is um, over in Chile, people have started to spot water um, right out at Z is six, you know, water, gas water, hot water.
0: So this is within the first billion years or so of the universe's history. Exactly, it's
2: already there, you know, you start to really get excited about, my goodness, if there's water already there, we know planets are a byproduct of star formation, that's a long time ago, could some civilizations have lived and died and all of these exciting things, it's pretty exciting. So for me, the very interesting thing is, is, um, especially in my field, in astrochemistry, we're starting to move in one direction into into the bigger stuff, into the extragalactic stuff. And it's a place where chemists haven't really gone before. So it's pretty exciting when you see these cultures colliding, the languages colliding. But actually, what I see at this meeting is that's happening in a lot of places. So um, if we go the other way, you know, when, when planets start forming, everyone's very interested. What does an exoplanet look like? Is it like Earth? Does it have an atmosphere? And there's some very interesting work going on. There was a whole session this morning about all the new um, missions that are coming up to, to, to look for exoplanets, mm. to study them. We really want to go and look for um, Earth-like planets. That's what we really want to find, that are in the habitable zone. So people are starting to think about whether or not we can see atmospheres around planets, whether clouds have an effect on planets... Um, And so that's starting to bring together, I'm looking forward to tomorrow, there's going to be a session where we're going to bring together uh, planetary scientists who study really surfaces of places like Mars and Mercury, where there's been a lot of interesting information going on. And um, on the other hand, um, sort of the brown dwarf and exoplanet community who come completely from the other perspective, and again, bringing those together to see how we can bring the fields forward and I think that's pretty exciting that's really where your big steps forward come where people really start talking to each other and that's I think one of the big advantages of NAM right being at National Astronomy meeting you you come into contact with cosmologists and the planetary scientists and and you sit in the middle somewhere as an astrochemist and think I can contribute to that and that and that so pretty exciting
0: and all these developments in astronomy, they, they need new telescopes, new instruments, new technology to go forward. There's been a recent development in the, the European Extremely Large Telescope, uh, which is due to be really started building properly in a few years' time. But something exciting happened this month.
2: Oh, yes. yeah, Just la- uh, last week, in fact, we, um, we blew the top of a mountain. Well, we didn't. The Chileans did it for yeah. us. Um, the European Extremely Large Telescope is going to be really the biggest eye on the sky it's going to um, give us better sensitivity than Hubble, but from the ground, so imagine that. And the big thing about um, EELT is it's going to have a good contrast, so we're going to really be able to see one thing against another bright thing. So we might have the potential with the EELT to observe or to image the first... Exoplanets, So not just detect them, but really to image them, make a picture. And imagine if we then could see an exomoon around one of those exoplanets. That's pretty cool stuff. And that's what the EELT will do. With its, its
0: 40-metre mirror, right? It's going to be enormous. That's
2: right. Well, we say 40 metres, of course. Trying to manufacture a single mirror that's 40 metres in diameter is almost impossible and move it to 3,000 metres. So in actual fact, the mirror is going to be 700. 58 separate segments. I had to think about exactly how many it was going to be. It's a lot of segments, a lot of tiny pieces, and it's going to use a system called adaptive optics. So that's what that's going to do is it's going to correct, really, for the Earth's atmosphere between us and where we're observing, and each piece of the mirror will move independently. But in order for all of that to work, we have to put the telescope on a really stable base. So we have to put it on a base that's around 300 metres wide, and and 150 metres long or the other way around whichever way you want to talk about it then we're going to put this huge telescope on which is like the size of half a football field so that's a pretty big telescope and we need it to be very stable and so the best place happens to be the site that we've chosen to put it on which the Chileans are quite happy with is a mountain in, in the middle of uh, the Chilean desert but it wasn't quite flat enough so they've blasted the away around I think it's around 5,000 tonnes of, of material um, which they'll reuse in building access roads and manufacturing things and everything else Um, um, to actually try and flatten the top of the mountain. So they're flattening the top of the mountain so they can actually start building telescopes. That's step one. We've got to wait about another 10 years for first light, unfortunately.
0: It's going to be a way off. But first steps are very, very important. And if you want to see videos of uh, the top of a mountain blasting off, I think they're available on the ESO website, so ESO.org.
2: Yes, ESO.org, and then if you just put in E-E-L-T... Um, If you put a little hyphen between the first E and the second E, um, that hyphen is very important to the Europeans Ah. because the first bit says European, extremely large telescope, as opposed to any other large telescope that might be being built, then you'll definitely find it.
0: Excellent. Well, uh, Helen Fraser, thanks very much for joining
3: us.
2: Thank you, Chris.
0: I'm joined now by uh, Jane Greaves from St Andrews University. And Jane, you've been looking at not one of the big shiny planets that we're used to seeing, Jupiter or Mars or Saturn. You've been looking at Pluto, that tiny dwarf planet right on the outer limits of the uh, solar system. Uh, What have you been learning about Pluto?
3: Pluto has always fascinated me because it is this small, you know, dignified dwarf planet discovered in 1930 we've known so little about what we've been doing is using long wavelength observations not light that you can see but about a thousand times longer more like radio waves and these escape really easily from underneath soils of planets so what we've actually done is dig out some data that enable us to look under the surface of Pluto
0: Wow so you've seen I mean, we haven't really seen the surface in any great detail but you're looking at the interior of the planet or I guess not really the deep interior, but...
3: No, that's right. We're looking a few centimetres down, we think. It's a bit like using radar, but without having to send a radio signal out. It's actually the um, materials in the soil, particularly the rock and ices, that send off this submillimeter wavelength light. And this was picked up um, by a submillimeter telescope quite a long time ago, in fact.
0: And what what have you learned? Does it look different a few centimetres down to on the surface?
3: Actually, it does. This is the really surprising thing. Um, We actually did this as a student project. It was the work of an undergraduate student looking at this data just been gathering dust. Um, I kind of thought it would look the same as the light curves that we've seen of the surface already in wavelengths like the infrared. What you get is as the dwarf planet turns around, you get different signals according to how much these ices emit, um, depending on whether, what they're made of, really. And so I thought it would just look like this normal curve. But in fact, what we got was something that on about half the dwarf planet looks different Um the curve goes down where normally they go up and it looks like the ice is just a few centimeters down are different and that in some ways is you might expect because sunlight hits the surface and maybe changes the chemistry it can produce darker chemicals um, but I wasn't expecting that just a few centimeters down you'd find something that appears to be chemically different
0: wow and do you think this is linked to, it's obviously in a binary system, of the chapters, it's linked with Charon, its large moon, or anything like that? Did
1: you yes, it's it it a
3: binary system, and indeed with four smaller moons around it as well, as we now know. Um, it may be linked to the formation of this whole system, because Charon's quite big compared to Pluto, suggesting they formed from some kind of cosmic crash. And in that case, um, what would have happened is maybe the materials got mixed up, but you wouldn't know that from just looking at the surface. You can't prove it. Um, So finding something a bit different lower down um, is actually really exciting for that model. What we're really looking forward to is the detailed pictures we'll get from the New Horizons spacecraft next year. So, for example, if the surface looks really wrinkled, that would be good evidence of something almost like plate tectonics like we have on the Earth, um, that things crashed together and created a sort of fragile surface.
0: So ahead of uh, New Horizons' visit uh, next year, we're getting a deep insight into, into Pluto. It's all uh, yeah. This is stuff.
3: I think this is really cool because the data are actually gathered um, in the last millennium, in 1997, <laughs> and it's only now we've thought to go, well, how does this match up with what we think today? Uh, so. Proper archive data. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> I mean, the archivists of these space and ground telescope facilities are just awesome. Yeah. Stuff is available to get your hands on and think about new science. Yeah.
0: Jane, thanks very much. Thank you. I'm joined by Brooke Simmons, who's at the University of Oxford. And uh, Brooke, you work on galaxy evolutions. That's how galaxies have been changing throughout the history of the universe. What kind of things have you been learning at the conference so far?
4: Well, it's been a really diverse conference so far. And even just in the galaxy evolution sessions, there's been a lot of topics. The session that, that I was just in was actually a combination of two different topics. Uh, the first of which was how you can tell a lot about a galaxy just by looking at it. For example, uh, you can tell that a galaxy has had recent star formation by looking at its color, uh, and you can tell that a galaxy is in a disk, so very rotationally supported, like a frisbee, Rotating in space a gigantic frisbee. Uh, because disks in in of stars have particular shapes to them and they have particular structures like spiral structures or great big bars that are these sort of like a like a rectangle right in the middle of the of the circular disk. And, and all of that tells us about the underlying physics. My work has been studying that recently, and, and you can sort of trace using these features how uh, disk galaxies are settling into very thin, thin sort of frisbees or pancakes um, over the course. Of of many billions of years. You can look at uh, what are called galaxy bulges as well, which are... This is the big
0: thing in the middle of a yeah, galaxy. Yeah, so it's, it's like
4: the yolk of the fried egg if your galaxy is two fried eggs back to back. It's like the yolks, And they come in different sizes, and they actually, it turns out, come in slightly different shapes as well. Galaxies are just sort of a big mess of, of structure and features, and so it's it's really a challenge trying to figure out exactly what's going on underneath all of this. One of the, one of the great tools in that is going to be... Um, the so-called IFUs, which are integral field units, which is a very technical term. But what it means is that you get a breakdown of the wavelengths of light. So you get different kinds of of chemicals and different compounds that are uh, absorbing and emitting light uh, at different wavelengths, and you get that breakdown all across the galaxy. We've been able to do these big surveys, so you can look at hundreds or even thousands of galaxies in this really unique way. It's a completely different dimension on galaxy evolution. We're just starting to see the results from those. And, and
0: it means that in, instead of just looking at how red is this galaxy, how blue is what colour has it got, mm. it means you can say where's the carbon in the galaxy, where's the nitrogen in the galaxy, exactly. or where are some of these, these yeah. complex molecules.
4: How long ago was the last time the galaxy formed stars and what kind of material was the gas made of that it formed stars, because the, the gas in, in galaxies in the universe, it changes its composition as the universe itself ages and evolves. And so uh, looking at colours won't really tell you very much about that, but looking at the, the full spectrum and all the information we can get is really powerful for that. It's
0: the physics part of the astrophysics, <laughs> I guess. <isn't laughs> yeah, it? Yeah, I, think, yeah. I think
4: in many ways. There's, there's there's ways we can get at the physics just by looking at the image, but then when you want to get into some of the details, there's really no way around it, but you have to sort of decompose all of the light into its, its component wavelengths and look at all the compounds. Uh, so we've had a lot going on just in galaxies, but... One of the things I really like about NAM is that you can go to so many different sessions. It's so diverse. Um, Matter of fact, one of my favorite uh, sessions has been, it was a plenary talk yesterday that was about the sun and about solar flares.
0: So not your research area not at, at all. Not at all
4: my research. The, the speaker was talking about how we can have super flares from the sun. So There's, we
0: we get flares from the sun, which are these these eruptions that cause the aurora ink and can right. sometimes knock out satellites and so right. on. These super flares are a thousand times bigger.
4: So at some point um, in I think it was Quebec, and uh, there was a solar flare that was a it wasn't a super flare by any means, but it knocked out the entire electrical grid. And this is something that that is is that times a hundred or a thousand, um, and and. I think what the speaker was really saying was we're due one of these. Uh, there was a, a timescale put on it that was between 800 and 5,000 years is the frequency that we have these. And we were all like, no, that's a big deal. So if we do have one of those, then there are a number of apocalyptic things that happen including the entire grid going down. No electricity for days, weeks, months, who knows. Astronauts
0: are in Astronauts real trouble. Astronauts
4: in real trouble. People on planes might have some issues with you know x-ray doses and things. Uh, so that was just like fascinating. And we all came out of it going, well, what do we do? <laughs> what can we actually do about that? And uh, there weren't many answers about that, but there's a solar physics session going on later, so maybe they'll talk about that. I don't know. I might go to it. That's the the brilliance of NAM. You can go to whatever sessions you want on whatever topics.
0: We, we should say two things, I suppose. One, these don't happen like clockwork. They don't happen every <laughs> 800 years or every 5,000 no, 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 yeah. years. But, and also, one would hope we would get a little bit of warning that something was kicking off. That's up, the so good news we, yeah. with that. It's not,
4: it's not necessarily like, well, we... we we have a similar kind of apocalyptic regime in astronomy, which is, you know, asteroids and comets impacting the Earth. With these, you, you probably get some clear amount of notice, and then even once it goes off, there's some time delay for it to reach us, so we'd po- possibly be able to ground all the flights. And
0: Well, it's the wonderful thing about this meeting, National Astronomy Meeting, is is that there are 600 astronomers here from from all over science, and, and in just a few minutes we can talk about galaxies in the distant universe <laughs> and, and the sun, uh, right on our cosmic doorstep, essentially. So right. It's, uh, and there's lots of astronomers sitting out here, uh, enjoying, sitting on the steps, enjoying their lunch between sessions. And I think uh, Wimbledon just starts on a big about screen to start behind on this, us on the so TV. Maybe everyone will start watching that as well. It's possible.
4: Uh, I hope we don't miss our sessions because we're, we're watching Serena Williams. I think is is playing today.
0: Well, uh, well, Brooke, uh, thanks very much. It's been a fascinating insight into what's going on at uh, National Astronomy Meeting.
4: Thanks, Chris.